Welcome to Drinks and a Show. My name's Cassie and this is a musical podcast where I like to talk about a musical, tell you everything about it, and hopefully you listeners either love the experience and you want to go see more musicals or you already love musicals and like hearing me as much as you like hearing musicals. Um, This kind of episode of True Tunes is where I talk about a musical and then go into the true story behind it. Today's episode is about Titanic the musical. Some people might not even know that that was ever a thing. Before I get into that, uh, don't forget to give the show a follow on Instagram and Twitter. Keep up to date with what's going on, where sometimes I might drop that I'm posting an episode when I haven't been doing anything for the last four weeks. Uh, just search Drink Show Pod. For that on yeah the Insta and the Twitter. I also have a Spotify playlist where I put all my favorite songs from the shows I've done episodes on. So it's like your own drinks and a show musical playlist for those who don't really know what songs to start when you want to get into Broadway's but you trust me enough to be like hey these are the songs you should be listening to. The link for that is in the episode description and it is also on the link tree in those aforementioned social media accounts the insta and the twitter and you can subscribe that's a thing people say as well new episodes out on tuesday let's see how consistent i can be this year and uh what they say like and subscribe uh five stars on apple uh follow on spotify and whatever you do on google podcast that's a thing i'm not sure what you're meant to do on that one So let's start getting into the musical of Titanic. What inspired me to do this, you might wonder. Uh, I recently listened to Hollywood Crime Scene podcast where they did like five parts on the Titanic and I thought that was very interesting to like learn all that stuff. So I was like, hey, I know there's a Titanic musical and I've got a good pro shop version of it. So I'll give that a watch, make a whole episode and try and impart some of the stuff I learnt from that podcast onto you guys because if you're listening to this you clearly love knowing history that's that's what musicals are all about so titanic the musical uh the music and lyrics were written by maury yeston and the book was by peter stone it premiered in 1997 which was a coincidence that it came out in the same year as this not well-known art house cult classic titanic where it has uh, Leo and Kate. These are some actors. They haven't really been seen much on film or TV since this movie came out in 97. And yeah, it was never planned that they were going to do a musical and then that movie was going to come out because that James Cameron movie was like delayed as fuck. And then, yeah, the Titanic thing was separate. So the show ran for nearly two years, closed in March 1999, even came here in Australia and that's a version that I watched. It was, I think, in the Sydney Opera House, maybe. Could be making that up. The show won everything it was nominated for at the 1997 Tony Awards. So that was Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Original Score, Scenic Design and Orchestration. So when you hear Scenic Design, if you're like me, Drinkinators, you're like... 
damn, I got to see what the hype's about, what's so good about this set. Well, it's Titanic, so you know it's going to be probably pretty extravagant and probably hard to beat as well, unless it's a really shitty musical, which it isn't. Go by the Tonys. Everyone loved it. So the idea for this to become a musical came to Yeston, so the guy who wrote it, um, the guy who wrote the music and lyrics. It came from the shipwreck getting discovered in 1985, thinking that it would make an interesting theatre piece. Soon afterwards, in 1986, the US space shuttle blew up. I don't know which one, but the one that blew up in 1986. And he realised, good God, we haven't learned anything, have we? So with the Titanic being a huge deal because someone forgot to put binoculars in the crow's nest and here we are in January 1986 and something called an O-ring, which apparently is the seal that they put in the rockets, is the thing that led the death, led to the death of seven people. He felt like that we had still not learned not to put all our unparalleled, unqualified faith in the perfection and infallibility of technology. So hopefully that all made sense to you. This was obviously his words or from the Titanic musical website after an interview with him. With the success of darker themed shows like Les Mis, Sweeney Todd, doing a show on one of the biggest maritime tragedies didn't really seem like that far-fetched to do. And another thing that drew Yeston towards a show was the dreams of the passengers on board. You had third-class passengers wanting to emigrate to America for a better life, second-class to try and live as leisurely as the first-class do, and the first-class is just to really maintain being rich as fuck. This musical has heaps of characters. We've got the crew, which includes like the stewards, the captain, uh, all the officers. We've got the first, second, and third-class passengers, We've got the people like the guy who designed the boat, uh, the guy who owns the cruise liner, which, you know, technically is part of the first class passengers. But in total, it's about 40 characters, which is a fucking lot because you're not really doubling up on who people are like you're doing like Hamilton or other shows like that. So let's get into what the heck happens in the musical and then I'll explain what happened in real life with the Titanic tragedy. So, we start off the show seeing Thomas Andrews, who was the man who designed the Titanic. He's looking at how great the RMS Titanic will be. We are at the dock and everyone is singing about the great Titanic, telling everyone they'll be back in a fortnight. And I believe not many people, well not many people, it's probably just America, don't use the word fortnight for those who don't know what that means, that's two weeks. The crew arrives, we have... uh, J. Bruce Ismay, who is the owner of the shipping company White Star Lines, Captain E.J. Smith, and there's Thomas Andrews as well, the designer of the ship. They congratulate each other on their respective like roles in the Titanic uh, of the largest moving object in the world. We see the ship's passengers arrive. We have the third and second class who just are really happy to just be there as opposed to the first class who feel like entitled to be there. And this is the ship's maiden voyage. So that means it's first big sail that it's going to do. 
The first class passengers, their names and achievements are narrated by second class passenger Alice Bean. So here's what the first class roster is as per the song, which I might be the same name. We have John Jacob Astor, who is with his 19-year-old wife, who is 29 years younger than he is. So she was pregnant for just as long as they had been married. Pretty scandalous that they, after they got married, they run away to Europe. There's Isidore and Ida Strauss, who have been married for 40 years. He was a politician and the co-owner of Macy's. And they had been traveling due to Ida's poor health, as you can tell, being married for 40 years, they must be of age, of age, of an older age. Mr. Benjamin Guggenheim, rich through smelting gold business. Uh, (laughs) It's a weird way for me to word that. Uh, Through the business of smelting gold, I think might be better to say that. And he spends money like crazy and lives in sin with his mistress. Mr. and Mrs. George Widener, he's the richest man in Philly. Mr. and Mrs. John B. Thayer, vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Charlotte Drake Cardoza, someone who they don't know much about, but she booked the most expensive suite on the ship, so she must be a somebody. So that's like the big introduction to the first class passengers. We don't really get that for the second and third class people, but we gradually get to know them throughout the show so we are now at sea ismay arrives on the bridge to inform the captain that he plans for the titanic to arrive in new york on tuesday afternoon rather than wednesday morning so we ask how fast can the ship go and they go up to 23 knots and he goes well do it you better make it 23 knots and the captain goes i know i feel like this maiden voyage should be a safe one but sure okay we'll go a bit faster in the meantime so with the top speed being about 23 knots, he is like, I'm going to go faster, but uh, let's do about 21 to 22 knots throughout this. So Fred Barrett, who's in the boiler room, disagrees with the order that they shouldn't be doing this on such a new ship, but he still has to do it. That's his job. And there's a whole song about how he thinks that's a bad idea. The second class passengers that we meet, so Alice Bean, Uh, the one I was saying was singing the song about the first class passengers before. She wants to live the high life much like those first ones, while her husband, Edgar, who is a hardware store owner, is fine with how things are with just the two of them. We have an engaged couple, Charles Clark and Caroline Neville. They're planning to move to America to elope since her father doesn't approve of them as a couple. In the third class, we meet three Irish girls. All of them are called Kate. They're excited to see what their new life in America is going to have for them. They were dancing much like in that scene in the 97 movie where it's like the, uh, the I don't know if it's an underground, but like where they would all hang out in the third class and like the steerage, they will just all be like Irish dancing. The classic third class stuff. Ismay is so obsessed with the boat going faster and just wants the boat to get there as fast as possible. And Andrews goes, mate, your dad cared a bit more about safety. Maybe you should try and be like that too. Ismay is like, well, people don't really care about that. They want fast ships. That's what's going to bring the money in. In the wireless room, so this is where all the messages are coming in through like a radio, 
We have Harold, who deals with the messages received on received to the boat. So what happens is people are sending out personal messages and they're receiving personal messages too. And he mentions that he receives a bunch of notifications about icebergs and he's sent them up to the bridge. Bridge is where like the captain and all the officers hang out. And he was nice enough to also send a proposal to Fred Barrett, the stoker from the boiler room I mentioned before. And send a proposal to his girlfriend after he was like, why, sir, I've got to focus on these personal messages because personal messages top priority for when you care about what your passengers think. On Sunday morning, the first class attends church and then they dance on deck to the song The Latest Rag, which I've highlighted this song because I actually quite like it. I think this might be the only song from this show that I will put on the Spotify playlist, but I did enjoy this one. Alice Bean, the second class passenger, managed to sneak in and her hubby Edgar is like, come on, it's not that great. We've got access to just as good stuff as they do where we are. She's still like, oh man, but they're first class. We cut to the bridge where the captain decides to increase the speed to the 23 knots And it is mentioned how they've received reports about ice and the temperature. And since the temperature isn't consistent, because he's been told that the temperature is going to be 40 degrees Fahrenheit. No, it's going to be 30 degrees Fahrenheit. He goes, God, nobody knows what they're talking about out here. They're not saying the same thing. That's why this radio thing sucks. It's not reliable. We see the Strauss couple. So the one that's been married for 40 years being in love, looking forward to their future. They're all just like chilling on like the deck. And the second class, Edgar. Who's Edgar? Is Edgar the engaged guy? No, okay. Edgar is Alice's, the one who's obsessed with first class. He is talking to someone in first class about his wife being obsessed with the first class. We see one of the Kates, who's in the third class, talking to the guy she likes, Jim Farrell. And tells him that she's carrying a baby. And the father of that baby happens to be a married man. And she would hope that even with all this information, maybe Jim Farrell would be open to marrying her. In which Jim Farrell, who this isn't the first time they've met. There's a whole little backstory with them. He says, yes, he's happy to raise someone else's child because he loves Kate. We hear from Ferret... We hear from Frederick Fleet, who is the lookout. He's singing how there is no moon and it's so dark that you can barely see a thing out there because normally when the moon's there, things can reflect. The captain goes to bed and as he goes to bed, he tells them to keep an eye out and the officers make a note to the crow's nest to keep an eye out for ice because that is at least something consistently that does keep coming back. Charlotte Drake Cardoza... She's the one who everyone goes, man, she's rich. No one knows why. She goes into the first class smoke room. I know what you're thinking. Okay, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because she's a woman and normally that is only for the men. Then we cut back to Frederick Fleet who suddenly spots an iceberg and he alerts the bridge and the bridge reacts straight away. And does its best to try and avoid the iceberg. However, it's unsuccessful and the boat does strike the iceberg. 
And that's how act one ends. So it sounds like a lot, like most of the time when I talk about like act one of musicals, but then the whole second part of the act is, if you don't already know, uh, it's going to sink, is the sinking of the Titanic. So you get that break to like prepare yourself for pretty much like what's going to come up in the second act. Act two. The stewards begin waking up all the passengers. A few of them are very confused. So they are like asking questions. The stewards don't have much information. They've just been told to wake the passengers. They do notice that the ship's engines have stopped because you normally have like that hum of like the boat that's always going on. And they're like, oh, that's weird. It's a bit too quiet. We see Captain Smith who's on the bridge and he's briefed about the situation He orders them to tell all the passengers to put their life vests on. He tells Bride, who's working in the wireless radio area, to send out a distress message to ships that are nearby and goes ask Andrews to go inspect the damage. We hear that the water is leaking into the boiler rooms below the deck. Ismay obviously doesn't give a shit about any of this. He just wants a boat up and running because, you know, we're going to stop the boat means we're not going to get there like 12 hours earlier than what we wanted. We see the difference of how the classes are treated. First class is given life jackets and are told to rug up because it's going to be really fucking cold outside. The second class are told to wear life jackets and third class are told to remain where they are and wait till they hear any more new information. Third class was able to hear the whole commotion of the iceberg because they're closer to the bottom of the ship. Meanwhile, as you go up, second class were kind of able to hear it and feel it. First class, nothing. They're so far up that something that happened that far down didn't even affect them. Barely noticed anything. Uh, Andrews, the designer, informs Smith and Ismay that the damage inflicted is more than the ship is designed to endure. It can endure about like It was like four sections of it filling up with water and continue on. And it's gone into six. And he predicts that they have 1.5 to two hours until the ship fully sinks. In the first class dining room, the passengers really refuse to believe that anything's going on, that they're all just being extra. And they're annoyed that they were just awakened like in the middle of the night trying to sleep. Crew members are trying to assure them that there's no reason to panic that everything's fine, we're all just taking precautions and everyone is all like, yeah, yeah, this is too much, we're all being so dumb right now until they realise that a food cart starts rolling on its own and they realise, oh shit, this ship is going on a tilt. I'm freaking out a bit now because it should not be going like that. In third class, the three Cades and Jim Farrell attempt to find their way up to the boat deck because, you know, they were being kept down. And they end up getting help from Barrett, who was a stoker from earlier, who works in the boiler room. The captain is told that there's 2,200 people on the ship, but there is actually only enough room on the lifeboats for about half the people. He rushes to the radio room, where he is told that the only one responded is the Carpathia, but they're about 58 miles away, which would take about four hours to arrive. There is the SS California, which is less than 10 miles away, and isn't responding to their SOSs that they're sending. We have the captain, Andrews, and Ismay, who are all arguing over the responsibility of the disaster. Smith is getting the blame for ignoring the warnings about the bergs and being careless. 
Andrews for not designing more lifeboats, Ismay for saying, well, we don't need the lifeboats because there needs to be more room for the first class passengers to hang out and putting the money above the safety of the passengers. At the lifeboats, the women and children are being ordered to get in there first while the men are all being told to stay behind. Ida Strauss, the wife of the older couple, she refuses to get on a lifeboat and decides to stay on board with her husband. The men who stayed behind on board are accepting their fates and they all head inside to go have a drink. We see the bellboy tell the captain that all the the lifeboats have been launched He's told that all but one lady in the first class was saved. So that was Ida. Murdoch, who is the first officer, tells the captain that he takes full responsibility for the accident, that he should not have tried he should not have tried to avoid the berg, that that caused more damage, but maybe he should have just gone straight through it. May have lost some lives, but the ship would have at least been fine. The captain forgives him, and then he talks to us, the audience about how he had gone his entire career without experiencing any accidents we see henry who is a first class steward he says a prayer and gives the strausses a nice bottle of champagne and they sing a love song to each other called still saying i love you still um if i explained that weirdly i meant the strausses are singing it the steward isn't (laughs) singing that to them as well but they do travel a lot. So the steward and the Strausses actually do have like a good relationship. He's like, it's been a pleasure serving you all these years. Andrews is looking at the design of the ship, singing about how he would have improved it. He describes what will happen to those still on the ships, how what we kind of know that the boat will split from the middle once it's going up to a like oh you can't see it i'm using my hands uh it's gonna go from horizontal up vertically and then split from the middle so the people who are on the deck will probably be holding onto the railings for their dear lives as it is going up in the early hours of the morning the survivors are rescued by the carpathia many of them recount the tragedy of the titanic mourning the loss of the people that they were just with and also the ship itself. They mention that even though people did have to stay on board, there were still 450 spare seats in the lifeboats. So of the 2,208 people on board, there was only 705 survivors with the possibility of them being able to save more. The blame goes around from not seeing the bergs going too fast, the Californian not responding to them when they just weren't that far away. There is Bride, so the guy who was in the wireless room. Ismay, he was one of the survivors. They discussed the possibilities that could have prevented the disaster, all through song, of course. And that's how the show ends. It's depressing because we kind of all go into Titanic knowing that it's obviously going to be a sad ending. It's not going to be someone's rewriting a Titanic story. And then in the end, it's all great. and Everyone has a good time. So we all know that's going to happen. And I don't know about you, but I kind of hate that. But it doesn't stop me from watching that sort of stuff where I know something bad's going to happen. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, oh, my God, if only they'd done this differently, which maybe is the point. This kind of stuff is created so that we learn. But let's hear about the true story behind the RMS Titanic. So I'm going to go into a bit of the background of the boat. Uh, What else do I go into um, about the actual 
characters in the show who they were based on and then explain really what happened like the timeline of the sinking the Californian's role and just yeah post sinking as well so let's get into that so why was the Titanic made in the first place so Ismay and William James Peary wanted to create the best luxury ship in the Atlantic to go against the Lusitana and the Moritana. I realized I had never said those out loud, so hopefully that's pronounced properly. So the Lusitana was known for its luxury and the Moritana was known for being the fastest crossing on the Atlantic. So they decided to come up with the Titanic and Olympic to challenge these two. The original design of the ship had 64 lifeboats and that was cut down because Ismay felt that too many lifeboats would clutter the deck and obscure the views for the first class passengers. This 64, if they were there, meant that there would have definitely been enough room to carry everyone on the boat. The ship ended up having only 20 lifeboats which could carry just short of 1200 people. The Titanic will hold about 2,200 people as we hear at the end. There were regulations in place about how many lifeboats you were meant to have on a ship. However, they had not been updated since 1896 and the regulation was that the ship only needed to provide lifeboat capacity for up to 1,060 people. It did not depend on the size of the ship at all. That was just the standard at the time. The ship boat... I'm not sure if people be offended if I say boat. It took two years to build and the cost of it was about $166 million. That's with inflation. And that was less than how much it cost to make the movie. But we know movies are fucked. So, of course, that was expensive. It departed from Southampton on April 10, 1912. First class tickets. Uh, so this all ranges depending on what website you look at because it changes wherever I look. Range from about... $150 to about $4,350. That's not with inflation. So these days, according to some random website, that's about $1,700 to about $50,000 as the most expensive ticket. Second class tickets were about $60, which in these days is about $700. And third class passengers paid about Fifteen to forty, which is about one hundred and seventy to. For some reason, this website went from one hundred seventy dollars to four hundred and sixty pounds. You make of that what you will, and it makes sense. You know, people willing to pay that much, then move to a new country. Like, imagine if you had to move to a new country and all you had to pay was like one hundred and seventy bucks. That's not too bad. But these, once again, these numbers change depending on what website you look at. Uh, the facts that I. What I was able to get was from the website titanicfacts.net. So that's where I got a bunch of that information. Now the passengers. So I'll tell you what the true story was of what some of the characters were based on. So John Jacob Astor was married to a 19-year-old Madeline Astor. And yeah, it was just shy of the 30-year difference between the two. She was originally 18 when they got married. He was worth $87 million when he had died on the Titanic so that's about 2.33 billion in 2020 and they were a controversial coupling but not because of the age difference because he was divorced and so because he was divorced obviously they didn't like the age difference either but the divorce was worse 
And a few priests actually even refused to marry them. So they were on the Titanic because they were just finishing up their extended honeymoon and finally heading home to New York. She was pregnant at the time. In the show, they say, oh, married for seven months and she's seven months pregnant, but that's actually not the case. She was five months pregnant. So they had been married for a few months until she got pregnant. When the boat was sinking, Asta asked if he could go with his wife as she was in a delicate condition. He was refused by the staff on the boat saying women and children first. And he tried to make her feel better by saying, it's fine. I'll get into another lifeboat. I'll catch up with you later. He ended up dying in the sinking and Madeline gave birth to their son four months later and named him after the father. The Strauss couple had been each other, had been with each other for 40 years. They were meant to be on a different ship home, but due to a coal strike, they had to go on the Titanic. So if, you, if anyone knows what that means, maybe that like stopped another ship from going. They were both offered a spot on the lifeboat. So it wasn't that it was only Ida and she would have to be split from her husband. It was more Isidore said he didn't want to be made different like everyone else. If he's offered a spot on the boat, it's only just because he's rich. And he goes, no, I'm not going to take that spot from a woman or a child. And Ida goes, well, I'm not going anywhere without my husband. Where you go, I go. And they were last seen arm in arm on the deck. And it kind of makes it sadder because they could never recover Ida's body, only her husband's. And his body was found and flown home. Well, her one has never been found. That's sad. Ben Guggenheim was aboard with his mistress, who was named Le- Leontine Orbert. I believe she- I believe she's French and that was a terrible pronunciation of that name. He was rich from mining, so the gold smelting I attempted to talk about before. During the sinking, he didn't think it was a big deal, but then when he realized how crazy it was, he went back to his room, put on his best clothes, and said, we've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. He continued to help people get on the lifeboats and his body never ended up being recovered. The really rich family from Philadelphia, George and Eleanor Widener. Eleanor survived and George and his son died in the sinking. Both of their bodies weren't recovered. John B. Thayer was in charge of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company His wife survived along with their son who had originally stayed but then ended up diving from the sinking ship and swimming to an overturned lifeboat. John, however, himself, his body was never recovered. Charlotte Cardoza was a real person but her real name was Charlotte Wardle Cardeza. She grew up wealthy and married wealthy too. Her and her son were there with their maid and they had the biggest room All three of them survived the sinking and Charlotte later actually did an insurance claim for over £36,000 for what she lost on the boat of like her belongings. Edgar and Alice from the second class. So Alice, the one who was obsessed with the first class and Edgar, her husband, who's like, hey, just be happy with what we've got, were based on Edward and Ethel Bean. He was a bricklayer and she was a dressmaker. They survived the sinking with it being rare that a male from the second class was surviving but that was because he leapt off the deck and swam to her lifeboat. Charles and Carolyn, the ones who were going to go and elope in America, 
were actually a couple that were already married and they were off to go live in San Francisco. Carolyn's name was actually Ada Marie and Charles ended up dying in the sinking and Ava, Ada, is it Ava or Ada? I've written both here. She ended up surviving it. The three Kates from the third class, all three of them survived in real life. The Kate that was Preggers was based on a Kate Gilner. I do not know if I pronounced that right. Uh, but they didn't go with that name in the show. They decided to go with the name McGowan. Jim Farrell, the third class in the musical the guy from the musical, the one who agreed to marry Kate, even though she was pregnant. He survived in the musical, got on the boat with all the girls. However, in real life, he helped the women, including all the Kates, survive. And then when the higher deck crewmen wouldn't let them through. So remember how they were like trying to sneak and then the, the Cole Stoker guy helped them get through? It would, That situation happened, but Jim was the one who actually threatened the staff who wouldn't let them do it. So... If he hadn't done it, those girls might never have made it and gotten onto the boat. He was a hero. He didn't end up surviving in real life. The crew. Captain Smith did end up going down with a ship. Thomas Andrews died on the ship too. Rumor had it he was just chilling in the smoking room. Let it happen. believe in the movie that is Victor Garber who plays him. Am I making that up? Let me just double check. Yeah, Victor Garber. So I think also in the movie, he's just chilling there in like maybe the dining room and you can see like all the water come in. Ismay, the one who goes, hey, go as fast as you can. He's owned the White Star. He survived. He managed to get on a lifeboat because he said there seemed to be no more women or children who needed to get on. Uh, he's always portrayed to be just a complete asshole. Like he only cared about money uh, apparently it wasn't too much like that in real life. He probably did have like some blame in it, but just an over-exaggerated character. He, after it, had extreme PTSD, of course, like who wouldn't after going through that. Harold Bride, who was in charge of the radio and communicating to other boats, he kept working until the ship lost power. He survived by being able to get on an upturned lifeboat as well. Frederick Fleet, the lookout who saw the iceberg, he survived the sinking. So the stoker, Frederick Barrett, he died in the show. However, while looking into it, there's actually two Frederick William Barretts who worked in as stokers on the ship. So they had two different outcomes. One survived. The other one who did die uh, in the sinking had a wife and twin babies who had just been born as well. It is said that the band on board did continue to play uh, to ease the nerves of the people and they ended up sinking with the ship as well. That was also the band's choice to do that. That wasn't like an order that they were given. Now, how did this all happen? Let's go into the timeline, the iceberg, Californian. Why did all these things happen? Here's the build-up. So on Sunday, April 14th, the captain decides to cancel the lifeboat drill with the passengers so they can all attend church that morning. They are first given an iceberg warning at 10.15am, 
second one just two hours later about midday from the steamship the baltic and by 5 30 it is so cold it is about 0.5 degrees celsius don't know what that is in fahrenheit but zero fahrenheit and zero celsius are pretty much the same so you know how cold that is so just after 5 30 at 5 50 They've been receiving iceberg warnings throughout the day. Captain Smith changes the Titanic's course, heading a bit slightly south. However, the ship's speed is not lowered and is still doing its max speed of 22 to 23 knots. This change of direction should have directed the Titanic into an area of the Gulf where it would be free of icebergs. And in any other year, it would have been. But in the year 1912, it was not a normal year for ice. Cold water had pushed the warm water Gulf Stream further south and the change in direction actually put them on a collision course with more icebergs when any other time they would have been steering clear after getting all those warnings. At 7.20, Bride, who had been working on the wireless ship, he brings in a whole bunch of messages about icebergs. So he had been receiving heaps more throughout the day as well, but he was putting preferential treatment on the passengers of getting their personal messages out because that was the customer service that they were trying to aim for they were like this is more important than anything else that we're doing get the personal messages out so about two and a bit hours later the masaba sends a warning to the titanic about an ice field that includes a heavy pack ice and a great number of large icebergs ahead the wireless operator jack phillips who is doing the personal messages, he never passes on that warning to the bridge. So another example of the personal messages getting prioritized. At 10 p.m., Frederick Fleet, the lookout, and Reginald Lee, they begin their watch on the crow's nest. The night is unusually calm, making the icebergs difficult to see because there's no waves breaking at the icebergs. You don't like hear it happening. And also in the musical How Mentors, No Moon, there's no reflection, it's completely dark, and the binoculars on the crow's nest have been misplaced. At 5 to 11 at night, the nearby Californian radios a Titanic saying, Say, old man, we are stopped and surrounded by ice. And the wireless operator, Phillips, very annoyed, going, Shut up, shut up, I am busy, I am working Cape Race, which is a wireless station located in Newfoundland in Canada so he only had a two-hour window where he was able to send messages to and from so that's why he's like shut up I'm trying to do this the Californian is trying to tell them hey it's pretty dangerous around here we've had to stop the engine completely because we don't want to hit anything and Philip's like cool why the fuck are you telling me this about half an hour later 11:35, the wireless operator in the Californian turns off his radio fleet sees the iceberg in the titanic's path and rings the bell three times to indicate that something is ahead he calls a bridge and murdoch i think it was the first officer orders the titanic to hard a starboard so and the engines reversed i'm sure that means something to someone who understands boats Five minutes later, the starboard side of the Titanic scrapes along the iceberg. Captain Smith arrives on deck and is told that the ship has struck an iceberg. Shortly thereafter, he is informed that the mail room is filling with water. Other reports soon come in of water in at least five of the ship's compartments. 
Thomas Andrews, the designer, surveys the damage. The Titanic was built to remain afloat with only four compartments flooded. He predicts that the ship only has one to two hours before sinking. Midnight, we are now on April 15th. The lifeboats begin to be readied for launch. The 20 boats have space for only 1,178 of the more than 2,200 people on board. An order is given for women and children to board first with crewmen to row and guide the boats. 12.15, Captain Smith orders Phillips and Harold Bride to send out distress signals. Although SOS became the official distress signal several years earlier, a lot of people still use CQD. CQ signifies a general call and the D means distress. Over the next several hours, Phillips will send out both SOSs and CQDs. The Frankfurt is one of the first ships to respond. The liner is about 170 nautical miles away, which is 315 kilometers away to the south. Other ships also offer assistance, including the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic. However, they were all too far away. Five minutes later at 12.20, the Carpathia receives a distress signal from the Titanic. Come at once, we have struck a berg. It's a CQD, old man. The liner immediately changes course. However, it's 58 nautical miles, 107 kilometers away. It would take the Carpathia more than three hours to arrive at the ship. Passengers waiting to enter the lifeboats are entertained by the Titanic's musicians who initially play in the first class lounge before moving onto the ship's deck. At quarter to one in the morning, many of the, many of the first lifeboats will be launched well below capacity, partially because crewmen are worried that the davits that are putting the boats down will be unable to move them if they're a fully loaded lifeboat. The lifeboat will have room for about 65 people. However, they will only have 17 people in it. In addition, a lot of the passengers are actually more afraid to leave the ship, believing that the Titanic is, first of all, unsinkable. Second of all, safer than it is to be on a little, not, not that it's like a little lifeboat, but a smaller boat out in the middle of the Atlantic. The Titanic fires its first of eight distress rockets. Crewmen aboard the Californian, because remember, it's actually not that far away, see the rockets and fail to determine the source. Some of the crewmen believe that the rockets is maybe fireworks or something going off the Titanic, and it's actually no distress, it's just the Titanic peacocking, kind of. Lifeboats are still being dropped out there, and the lifeboat that had the lookout fleet on it also had the quartermaster, Robert Hitchens, the one who was at the wheel when the Titanic struck the iceberg. Robert Hitchens, very controversial. His actions, which included refusing to go back and look for survivors because he reckons that they'll only find stiffs, and people who are in the water will see them coming and try and get on the boat and eventually it will flip anyway and then they'll all be goners. He was not well liked in the boat and they were threatening to throw him overboard because he was just an absolute jerk. A boat that can hold 40 people is also lowered with only about 12 people. Rumor has it that someone on the boat paid the crew five pounds to let no one else on, which fucked if true. At 1.30 a.m., Amid the growing panic, several male passengers tried to board number 14, causing 5th Officer Harold Lowe to fire his gun three times. He is later placed in command of a boat. After the sinking of the Titanic, Lowe will transfer people into lifeboats 4, 10, and 12. 
and collapsible D so he can return for survivors in the water. He will put several men, he will pull several men from safety and rescue those in the partially flooded collapsible lifeboat. So he did like make up for the missing numbers eventually down the track and did go back to actually look for survivors and did actually save a few people there. At 2 a.m., the only lifeboats that remain on the Titanic are the three collapsible boats. The Titanic's bow has sunk enough that the stern's propellers are now clearly visible above the water. Captain Smith releases the crew saying that it's every man for himself and Smith is reportedly last seen on the bridge. At 2.17, Philip sends the final distress signal. 2.18, the lights on the Titanic go out, plunging the ship into darkness. As the Titanic's bow continues to sink, the stern rises higher out of the water, placing a great strain on the midsection. Eventually, the ship breaks into two between the third and the fourth funnels. At 20 past two, the stern disappears into the ocean and the Titanic is gone. Water pressure allegedly causes the stern, which still has air inside, to implode as it sinks. The stern lands 2,000 feet, 610 meters from where the bow is. Hundreds of people are in the freezing water and although there is room in most of the lifeboats, a lot of crewmen are fearful that the boats will be swamped if they return. A few boats do return, but it is too late. Some people are pulled to safety, but most are dying from exposure. At 3.30, the Carpathia arrives firing rockets. 40 minutes later, the first lifeboat reaches the Carpathia. It will take several hours for the ship to actually pick up all the survivors. At 8.30 a.m., the Californian, which learned about the sinking around about 5.30, they arrive. They search the area for several hours but are not able to find any survivors. At 8.50, the Carpathia, carrying 705 Titanic survivors, decides to head to New York. And that's the timeline of how the sinking happened. People say that the Californian could have saved a whole bunch more people if they had left since they were the closest to the Titanic compared to any other boat. If they had never turned off the radio or had the wireless thing said, did not tell them to shut up, shut up. I'm talking to these people in Newfoundland. However, some history buffs on the internet say that it wouldn't have made a difference because they were still surrounded by a lot of icebergs themselves. It's not like because they were closer, they would have got there quicker. They had literally had to turn off their boat to avoid like hitting all these icebergs. So if they had to try and go back to the Titanic, it would have been just as dangerous for them to try and do it. The radio operator on the Californian, Cyril Evans, before he did go to bed and turn the radio off, he forgot to set up the automated warning system that would have alerted him to any distress calls they would have received. So it would have blocked out all like the boring stuff, but still like the SOSs and CQDs would have gone through. There was an inquiry done in the US and by Britain as well to see whose fault it was. They interviewed the surviving crew, passengers, people from the Carpathia and the Californian, pretty much anyone who was related at all. The American inquiry concluded that since those involved had followed standard practice, the disaster was actually an act of God. The British inquiry concluded that Smith had followed longstanding practice that had not been previously shown to be unsafe. So in any other situation, it would have been the right thing. Noting that British ships alone had carried 3.5 million passengers over the previous decade, 
with only the loss of 10 lives, concluded that Smith had done only that which other skilled men would have done in the same position. Lord Mercy did, however, find the fault with the extremely high speed, the 22 knots, which was maintained, was very dangerous following the numerous ice warnings that they did receive. They made the recommendations that future lifeboat numbers be based on passenger numbers and not a ship's tonnage. Some stats for you. Uh, if you were a child in the second class, you were 100% saved. First class lost one child. Third class, only 34% of the kids were saved. First class women, 97% of them were saved. And we know Ida's reason for deciding to stay. There were a couple other women who also didn't make it. The lowest percentage that was saved on the boat was the second class men, where actually only 8% survived. All the men's stats was obviously low and most of the lives being lost was the male crew, but they also took up a lot of the numbers as well. So that's the very sad and tragic story of the Titanic. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I have now been going through a huge Titanic phase and hope to bring it up in every conversation I have, asking anyone if they wanted to know a fact that they didn't know about the Titanic. And you can do that too. Also listen to the podcast I listened to, uh, the Hollywood Crime Scene five-part Titanic episodes. Subscribe for new episodes out on Tuesdays and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.